as I was preparing for this message, um, being wedged between two seminarians that are giving messages, I was reminded of a quote by St. Augustine. Uh, St. Augustine said, the uh, sufficiency of my merit is to know that my merit is insufficient. And so that's kind of how I feel right now, standing before you, being a 23-year-old with no formal biblical training, but having the opportunity and the privilege to present what God has to say about the Incarnation in His Word. And I'm confident that by the end of today, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll be able to really wrestle with and understand not just the theological elements of the Incarnation, but how it implicates the way that we do life. Um, And as I was preparing... I thought immediately of Christmas, and I think that makes sense, right? The Incarnation ties to Christmas, God becoming flesh um, as a baby. And I actually considered having Mike sing a few Christmas songs instead of the songs we sang this morning. Um, But I figured pretty quickly that the music, surrounded by um, our summer heat, our shorts, and our flip-flops, we'd probably end up just getting distracted from the purpose of singing those songs. Really, for most of us, Christmas is something that we relegate to a period between Uh, you know, the end of Thanksgiving, or for some of us, well before Thanksgiving, and right up to the 25th of December. It's something that we don't necessarily think of as a Christmas in July theme, unless you're hearing it in a song. Um, There's uh, an individual, his name's Michael Card, and he wrote a book about Christmas, but he wrote his devotional during the summer months in July. And he was struggling to really connect to Christmas without those seasonal tidings that we're used to during that December period. And he wrote, and I have it here on the projector, he said that for too many of us, the scenery of Christmas has become too familiar and comfortable. It blocks our view into the depth of the stark mystery of it all. The tinsel star cannot possibly hope to kindle in us a hope in the light that has come blazing into the world. He goes on to say that, you see, if Christmas does not mean everything in July, then in truth, it means nothing in December. If I need a cooling in the weather and the sight of familiar decorations... And if my heart cannot celebrate today as I consider the birth of our Lord Jesus, then Christmas reveals a problem in me. Maybe until now, I have only been touched by the carols and the tinsel, the romance of Christmas, and not gripped with awe and wonder at the living gift. And the living gift that Card is talking about here is the incarnation. If that's the true wonder of Christmas, it's the idea that God in his unscalable glory became a vulnerable, accessible child. That's what we should celebrate in Christmas. That's what our minds should be called to when we sing songs. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, that's not what we usually come to. And so today we're going to be in John chapter 1, and I'm going to kind of walk through the first 13 verses relatively briefly. One, because there's just too much theological beauty to access in a half-hour, 40-minute sermon. Um, But also because John structured the passage in such a way, I would argue, to really lead into verse 14. It's really his climactic assertion. Let's go ahead and walk through some of these first sections. Here in verses 1 through 5, as I've got them bolded on the screen, we see that John is beginning with the end in mind. He's made it clear that Jesus is not merely a man or a prophet, but rather God himself. He's the founder, the creator, and the sustainer of the whole cosmos, everything that there is. This really connects to the end of the gospel in John chapter 20, where John writes in the second to last chapter of the gospel, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in the book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John is making it abundantly clear, both in chapter 1 and chapter 20, that Jesus is not an incredible prophet, a wise teacher, or just a really good person. Jesus is God. 
And that's incredibly important to going through the rest of this passage. Here in verses 6 to 10, we come into the next section. We see Jesus as the unconquerable true light. And that though Jesus had actually created the world, he was in the world continuously and revealed himself to the world in an incredibly personal way. The world, his creation, actually rejected him. An an unbelievable concept when we sit down and actually think about it. And then we go into the next section, verses 11 to 13. We see here in verse 11 that Jesus came to that which was his own. Now, the Greek here is actually conveying a really intimate concept, a really just a concept of a familiarity that actually is the same concept used when Mary comes into the home of Jesus, of Jesus, of Joseph. So when Mary enters into the home of Joseph, we see the same verb. It's a really intimate concept. And yet, even though Jesus came home in this intimate way, he was not received. Again, emphasizing this idea of separation. And yet, those who did receive him, Jesus adopted them into the promise, this redemptive story that we hear about week in and week out at Mac. And they weren't adopted, though, notice, by the merit of their heritage, right? They weren't adopted because they were good Jews. And they certainly weren't adopted because of their ability to follow the law. They were adopted solely on the merit of Jesus' grace. And this idea of grace is something we are going to just rebound over and over again in this message. Because without grace, we simply don't know God. And so it's really really important to see here in verse 13 that Jesus is accepting those who did receive him through grace. Now, all of these verses lead up into verse 14. We're really going to park and analyze today. Verse 14 says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is, I would propose, John's climactic assertion, the really the, the high point of this whole section that we've read. Because in this single verse, John captivates the ultimate meaning of what the incarnation actually is. What does it mean, truly mean, for Jesus, as God, to become man? And so we're going to focus on three specific parts today. We're going to focus first on what does it mean that Jesus is the Word. Second, that Jesus became flesh. And then third, that Jesus dwelt among us. So that's where we're going to really be analyzing and focusing today. First, let's begin with Jesus as the Word. When I am interpreting the phrase of Jesus being the Word, I take that to mean two key ideas. One, that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. He's the revealer of who God is. And second, that Jesus is the logic of God, because the Greek word for word is logos, the root word for the English logic. We'll get to that in just a minute. First, Jesus as the ultimate revelation of God. If we stop and think about what words are, really words are the way that we reveal ourselves to one another. The way that we communicate, the way that we interact interpersonally, it really comes down to words. Let me give you an illustration to kind of make my point. Let's say uh, I invite Ryan over to dinner. Ryan is the young man who read the passage earlier. Ryan's my disciple. I'm getting to know Ryan pretty well, but I don't really remember what he likes for dinner. So I've got two options. One, I can kind of speculate and think through, man, what does Ryan like to eat? What has he snacked on in the past? Or I could just kind of make a general meal that most people would like. That's one option. The other option is I can actually talk to him. I can say, Ryan, what do you want to have for dinner? And Ryan can tell me. Because when Ryan says the word, he is revealing himself to me. He's transmitting his desires. He's transmitting who he is. Okay? And that's what we mean when we say Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus, as the word of God, reveals 
God to us, just like Ryan reveals his tastes to me if I want him for dinner. I can give you another example to help kind of flesh that out. I haven't spent as much time here as I probably should have, especially when I was teaching. But let's say I go to the YMCA. Let's say that um, I spend a lot of time carefully observing one particular person who tends to show up the same time I do in a non-creepy sort of way. Okay. <laughs> let's say, though, I really, I really am p- carefully paying attention and I, I watch you know, who they show up with, what ex- exercises they participate in, how they interact with other people at the Y, um, what classes they participate in. I can really determine quite a bit about them just by watching them. Are they timely? Are they responsible? Are they considerate? Are they unselfish? Are they selfish? I can kind of pick up those characteristics. But if you were to ask me, do I know that person? There's only one answer I could give you, and that's no. Because I've never had a conversation with them. You see, to know somebody, you actually have to exchange words. And words really are the way that we communicate. It's the way we reveal ourselves. And I'm sure you guys are thinking of something pretty quickly, as I did as I was going through this passage. But Jonathan, we lie. We are arrogant. We manipulate with our words. And that's true, because we're sinful. And we, frankly, have a corrupt understanding of everything that we do. We're crazy, as Eric would say. But the reality is that Jesus is not confined by those limitations. Jesus is the perfect word of God. He is the perfect image of God. He does not manipulate. He is not arrogant. He is not self-seeking. He is the perfect revelation of God because he's not bound by those limitations. And so when we think about what it means to be known, then we start with the word of God and Jesus being the full revelation of God. Then we have to ask ourselves, since Jesus is God's word, How do we know Jesus and thereby know God? Well, James chapter 2 has a really chilling statement to the idea of knowing God. Here in the book of James, the author says, You believe that there is one God speaking to the church. Good. Even demons believe that and shudder. So simply to know about God clearly is insufficient, given that demons know plenty about God, probably a lot more than we do. So then we have to ask ourselves, how do we know God? And that's where we go to Matthew 7, perhaps, as my father would describe it, as one of the most scary passages in the Bible. Here in this passage, uh, Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's beginning to wrap up. And he's speaking about an end-time sort of situation before the judgment seat of Christ. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Key in here. Pay real close attention. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Evildoers, men who had done these incredible things. Jesus says, I never knew you. So let's look at these many people. What characteristics do they have that at least we can see? Well, for one, I would propose they were theologically orthodox, okay? When they meet Jesus at the judgment seat, they describe him as Lord. Now, we've seen all through the Gospels before this and in the other synoptic Gospels that others describe Jesus as teacher, as prophet, but not as the Messiah often. It's very rare that people actually recognize Jesus as Lord. So it would seem that their theology appears at least to be orthodox. It would also appear, too, that they're passionately involved in terms of how they interact with Jesus, You see, in the Semitic language, to repeat someone's name really conveys a lot of emotional attachment. It reminds us maybe of a time where David, when he was king, 
um, was in just such disarray and depression after hearing his son's death, Absalom. Absalom rebelled against David towards the end of David's reign. And when David found out that he had been killed by one of his generals, David cried, Absalom, Absalom. And that, that technique is designed to convey emotion. That's exactly what these people are doing here as well. They're saying, Lord, Lord, this is not someone they know from a distance. They believe they know him personally and, and at least passionately. And then finally, they appear to be incredibly active in miraculous ministry. Look at what these men have done. I mean, they've driven out demons. They've prophesied. They've performed many miracles. Things that few of us, especially me, could ever lay claim to on our spiritual resume. Okay, and Jesus doesn't contradict this. He doesn't say, oh, wait, no, you didn't. He's not, he's not actually contradicting them. He's saying, at least silently, that this did actually happen. So these men appear to be theologically orthodox, passionately involved, and active in miraculous ministry. And we're starting to think, man, if they don't know Jesus, how do I know that I know Jesus? And this is where I really want us to wrestle with this understanding, family. Christians, by the way of the Holy Spirit, we're going to produce these characteristics, okay? If the Holy Spirit is in our life, we're going to do these three things. But simply seeing these three things in your life, in and of itself, is not proof that you're a Christian. Good people can do these things, okay? Whether or not you are a Christian is based on something totally separate from this. And I want you to think about this. If you are at the judgment seat of Christ and Jesus asks you, why are you here? If you appeal to these three things, you have totally missed the gospel because the gospel is an appeal to grace. It's all about grace. If we are wrestling with God and we are in accountability and we are just seeing our sin every single day, how could we possibly appeal to things like this? How could we say, well, God, I've done this. I've done that. I, I feel this way about you. The only thing that we could ever appeal to in that position is the grace of God. Because we know how sinful and broken we are. Okay, so let's, let's keep that in mind. To know Jesus is not to do all of these things. Fruit in your life, yes, that's important. But to truly know Christ is to know unmerited grace. And to know unmerited grace is to know God. And so when we say Jesus is the full revelation of God, we mean that he is showing us grace. And that when he shows us grace, he's showing us God. Now, I also want to step into the second point of what does it mean to, for Jesus to be the word. It also means that Jesus is the logic of God. Again, I'm getting this from the Greek word logos. A lot of times when we interact with non-believers, it's pretty common for us to interact with those that get the whole relationship thing, but really want some intellectual proof. They really want to see the way behind why we believe what we want to believe in. Really, they want an airtight, perfect argument for God's existence. Any of you who have taken philosophy classes or any of you that really take the time to think this through know that proving anything beyond a shadow of a doubt is impossible. Let me give you an example. Right now, I could be in a dream. In fact, I could be in one of those inception dreams where I'm in like a multi-layered thing. You know, three dreams back, people are having a gunfight. Two dreams back, someone's driving off a bridge. And I'm in, you know, that other dream. But I don't have any way to prove that that's not happening. Because to prove that all of that's not happening... I have to use my mental faculties. But to prove that my mental faculties work, I have to use my mental faculties. So there's really, ultimately, no way to prove, beyond a shadow of a doubt, anything. Because we rely on our intellect. And so for those that say, I want a perfect argument for God, totally miss the point. We, we don't have the capacity to do that. At some point, we need faith to presume something. We all have presuppositions. I just presuppose that God, as our first presupposition, is the best way to go. 
Okay, and that's where Jesus steps in again as the logic of God. I propose that God never provided an airtight argument for himself. He gave us Jesus, and he gave us faith in Jesus to explain who God is. Now, when I say that, I'm sure some of you, and at least I wrestle with this too, would say, Jonathan, isn't that anti-rational? Isn't it kind of anti-intellectual to say, just trust Jesus? No, it's not. To actually engage in Jesus and understand who Jesus is is an incredibly intellectual process. You see, to accept Christ, we have to wrestle with and struggle through the accounts of Jesus' life. We have to look at his claims. We have to look at the history surrounding the events. We have to look at who Jesus said he was and compare it to his behavior. That is an incredibly intellectual process. It's not a blind leap of faith, as some have characterized it. To understand who Jesus is is not anti-rational at all. And really, there are no abstract arguments for God. Really, Jesus, as God, as a perfect man who gave up his life on our behalf, stands as the best argument that there is. And I'm confident that if you take the time to wrestle through the claims and the reality of Jesus, you too will end up in the same conclusion, if you're honest with yourself. Wrestling with Jesus can only lead us to one conclusion. Okay, and now I want to move into the second idea. The idea that Jesus was not just the Word, but he became flesh. Before I really jump in, I want to point out two things very quickly. This concept of Jesus becoming flesh is the linchpin that separates Christianity from every other faith. See, every other faith will point to humans and say, you know, humans, work hard, do good, be pious. And then when you get to the end of your life, leverage that piety against God, and he's going to have to let you in because your good works that way you're bad. As a result, God just kind of sits comfortably back and then at the end of time serves as some sort of cosmic judge who puts our stuff on a scale and lets us in or lets us out. Christianity is radically different. Christianity is not like any other religion in this respect because in Christianity, the people of God are not granted access to eternal bliss with God based on our works. We are granted access to eternity based on God's grace alone. There again is that idea of grace. This is totally different than any other faith. And that only happens because God voluntarily entered into our suffering so that all things will one day be reconciled and made new. God is not a distant God. God is a personal God who chose to enter into our suffering and make himself flesh. And so I want to break that down. What does it mean for God to make himself flesh? First, it means that Jesus is our great high priest in that he understands what it means to be tempted and and the spiritual struggle of our life. It also means that Jesus is our wonderful counselor, that he understands what it means to go through the suffering that we all encounter on a regular basis. Let's go to that first point. The idea of Jesus as our sympathizing high priest. Hebrews chapter 4 speaks to this, and that's really what I'm drawing from when I think of this point. Here in Hebrews 4, the author says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so what we're seeing here in Hebrews 4 is the idea that Jesus being made flesh has allowed him to interact with the spiritual dimension of our lives, the temptations, the reality of sin. Okay, And he has actually encountered the same temptations that we have. Now, many have thought about this, though, and thought of this passage in particular and asked a very honest question. Well, if Jesus is God, then how real are his temptations? I mean, he's holy. He can't sin. So how, how can this be a real identification with me? Because I sin all the time, and I'm not God. 
So how does this work? C.S. Lewis really speaks to this idea and I think really shows the, the misunderstanding behind that mindset. Lewis says, speaking about Jesus, that it's a silly idea that good people do not know what temptation means. It's an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives into temptation, like most of us, like me, after five minutes, simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. And the reality is, is that family, we have lived a sheltered life compared to Jesus and what he experienced on our behalf because we give into temptations, I give into temptations like that. Jesus bared the full brunt of that temptation, the exponentially more difficult burden of that temptation to its end, something that very few of us can probably claim to. And so when we think about the experiences that we've encountered, we think about the, the, the fear and doubt that flow from the grief we experience, the betrayal, the injustice, the abandonment, the hunger, the persecution, and how that leads us to fear and anger. Jesus has been through all that. He was homeless. He was poor. He was slighted in a court of law. The man understands, as God, what we have encountered. Even, even in abandonment, I think of times where I've prayed and I have not heard the voice of God. And I think, God, are you listening to me right now? Jesus knows that too. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, wanted to abandon the plan that he had lived his whole life for. He said, Father, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. But ultimately still said, if not my will, but yours be done. Jesus has been at the points, the lowest points that we have been in. And if anybody knows what it means to experience that, Jesus does in every way when it comes to temptation. Jesus also identifies with us in our suffering. And again, this comes back to kind of a more famous Christian, or Christmas passage in Isaiah 9. Here the prophet is prophesying of the coming Messiah. And he's speaking about a specific quality or characteristic of the Messiah. He says, for, us, to a, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So I want to really emphasize what it means to be a wonderful counselor. When you think about a counselor, it's someone that you go to when you're struggling. And it really helps when you're having that conversation to have ex that, that person who's counseling you to experience the same things that you have experienced. I mean, this makes sense to us. When someone has been through what we've been through, it's just easier to identify with them. A good example of this in real life is a man named Mike Yankoski. Yankoski wrote a book called Under the Overpass several years ago, and it chronicles... Um, a period in his life where he voluntarily gave up his college life, he was a college student at the time, and entered into a nine-month exercise where he lived homeless. Okay, he traveled from the streets of San Diego to Washington, D.C. with little more than a guitar and a sleeping bag and dealt with the realities of, of crime, of hunger, of living in a shelter, so that he could incarnationally understand what it meant to be destitute in this country. What that experience did for him during that nine months and what it's done for him since is it's given him an inroad to people that are some of the most underprivileged and under-resourced in our country, people that I would have a hard time dealing with and interacting with because I don't share their experiences. That's an incredible example of being a wonderful counselor. But even there, that example pales in comparison to Jesus Christ. Think about what Christ did as our wonderful counselor. He extended grace to us that we did not deserve. He entered fully into a finite existence and, and left his ultimate existence as God. 
he suffered tremendously and carried his commitment to death. It wasn't a temporary nine-month thing. I mean, this was a life-and-death commitment. That is an undeniably meaningful concept, that Jesus entered into our suffering. He knows what it means to be hungry. He knows what it means to be tired. He knows what it means to be exhausted. He knows what it means to not have anywhere to sleep. Jesus entered into that voluntarily. And so when we go to him with our pains and our frustrations, we speak to someone who knows exactly what we've been through. Again, not a distant God like these other religions. Brokenness, too, and suffering that we experience usually stands as something that we would say kind of keeps us from God, right? We look at all the brokenness in the world, and we say, how can an a all-powerful God be at the same time all-loving? I mean, we're living in Detroit, and we see that firsthand in many ways. We see the corruption in our public schools, the financial mismanagement of our budget. We see crime rampant. We see people leaving, and we say, man, this is not the way things are supposed to be. Think of an incident a couple months ago where here on the east side, there was a a seven-year-old boy who had been bullied at school repeatedly, day after day after day. And that seven-year-old boy somehow came to the conclusion that it was better to take his life than to keep living. I can't even understand how a seven-year-old can come to that conclusion. This world is so broken. And again, how can God be real in the midst of that brokenness? This is a hard claim. This is something that we wrestle with in this community. And yet, I would argue, even in the midst of that difficult suffering, that God shows himself through suffering, that brokenness can be something that amplifies God's truth. I can't tell you why suffering happens. I can't give you the perfect answer. But when I look at the incarnation, and I look at a God who voluntarily enters into our suffering and dies a gruesome death on the cross... I know for a fact that it cannot be true that God does not care. God must care. Why else would he enter into our suffering? Why else would he craft a redemptive plan that culminates with his death? Come on, if, if God doesn't care, then why did all of this happen? It must be true that God does care. And, and really, family, I can tell you all day that God loves you. But until you recognize that God has shown his love to you through the cross, just like a parent to a child, a parent can say, I love you, but never show it. The child understands that he's been loved or she's been loved when the parent shows it. This is our Heavenly Father showing us his love, not just telling us. Brokenness does not have to be an obstacle to the gospel. Brokenness can actually be the means to glorify God further. This is true, and as we're wrestling with this community, let's keep this in our mind as we think about what the Incarnation means. Okay? And let's step into this, this last idea, the idea that Jesus, who was the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Here we see a really specific phrase that John is using, the idea that Jesus made his dwelling among us. I don't know how to pronounce the Greek word, but I do know that it comes from another Greek word, root, a root Greek word, that means to tabernacle or to tent. Now, John could have used a lot of different words here. He could have said just lived with, came down to, hung out with. I don't know, Eric, is there hung out in Greek? I don't even know. But the idea that Jesus tabernacled among his people is a really important concept. It's fundamental to our understanding of what it means for Jesus to come here. It should recall us back to the wanderings of the Hebrews in the desert where God, in his glory, tabernacled among the people. Here in Exodus 25, we're reminded of this. Moses, God speaking through Moses says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. 
make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I show you. So God, with the Hebrew people, made himself known. He revealed himself in his Shekinah glory. That's just the idea that God's glory is not distant, but it's inhabited among his people. Even still, though, in terms of our sin and our relationship, when God made himself present in the time of Exodus, things were still messed up. Sin remained unreconciled and was merely temporarily reconciled through ritualistic sacrifices. Okay? And that led to a broken and disparaged relationship even between God and his people. And any interaction with God led to death almost instantaneously because that relationship was broken. Think of Moses when he did get a chance to actually encounter God's glory. He went up to Mount Sinai and he saw what essentially amounted to the back of God. Moses was so transformed by that brief incident that he was actually forced by God to wear a veil. So that way, if anyone ever actually saw his face, they'd be saved. Because if they saw his face without the veil, they would die as a result of seeing God's glory. God's glory in the Old Testament is an overwhelming and distant concept that leads to our death because of sin. Sin being unreconciled. But that's when Jesus steps in. Jesus, tabernacling among us, completely changes that reality. Now, in the New Testament era, we're reconciled by Christ's eternal atonement. We don't settle for ritualistic sacrifices anymore. And as a result, our relationship with God is renewed and made whole. An interaction with God, instead of leading to death, actually leads to life. And when we encounter the presence of God, and when his, his countenance is reflected off of us, when we show that to other people, it doesn't lead to death. It leads to life. See, when Moses was in the Old Testament and in a time where relationship with God was broken, when he revealed God's glory to others, it caused their death. But now, when we reveal God's glory to others, it brings life. Life the way humans were always intended to live. And so that's what it means to say that Jesus tabernacled among us. So a response. I've gone through a lot of top-shelf theology. I've walked through a lot of Greek words and, and important theological concepts, and I think that's important. But we can't leave it there. We can't just be mesmerized by intellectual flash. We have to ask ourselves, how do we respond to this reality? I propose the first thing we have to do is either run or bow. Because if everything that I've said is true, then Jesus is, in fact, God. He's not a prophet. He's not a nice guy. He's not a good teacher that hipster people like to talk about. This is the real God come in the form of human flesh. Okay? John Stott, in his book, Basic Christianity, kind of speaks to this idea. And he says, I think prophetically, that Jesus is not someone that we can like. A lot of people in our culture like Jesus. I propose you can't like Jesus. Because if what Jesus is saying here actually happened, then he's claiming to be God. If he's not God, then he's crazy, insane, or he's evil and manipulative. He's not a good teacher. Okay, Either Jesus is who he said he was and he's God, or he's a crazy person or a manipulative person. He's not a nice person that we can like. See, our hand is forced. We have to either run away from Jesus out of fear, out of ignorance, or out of misunderstanding, or we have to submit our entire life to Jesus and say, you are God, and I'm going to build my life around you. I'm going to multiply your image in the lives of other people. I'm going to be kingdom-focused. I'm going to reject the way that the world operates, and I'm going to follow you and allow you to be Lord in my life. I can't just say, well, Jesus, you know, that teaching is pretty cool. I like the golden rule. That's not how Jesus works. He's God. He's claiming to be our creator, not our buddy. Okay? So this is really important. Either run or bow. There is no middle option. Second, we can rest. 
And in the context of that intense point from the first one, remember that Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Jesus knows what ails us. He knows our pains and our weaknesses, and he knows how to address them. I'm reminded of a passage in Luke 5, and this is a passage you can read and you're probably familiar with, but it's a a situation where some friends, knowing that Jesus was healing people in a particular house, actually lowered their friend through the roof so that Jesus would be able to access their friend. It was an incredible show of friendship and community. Jesus, when the man was lowered right in front of Jesus in verse 19, says in verse 20 that when Jesus saw the faith of his friends, of the paralyzed man who was sick, he said, friends, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, I want to kind of hit on this a little bit because we know from Scripture that God just doesn't give out forgiveness. Okay, Repentance has to be involved somewhere. God just doesn't just dole out forgiveness like that. But God is merciful. And so I would propose that God knew this man's heart and that even though the man didn't say anything, he saw the silent tremblings of his spirit and said that was probably screaming out for repentance, even in a silent way. And Jesus said, I forgive you. And that's because Jesus is willing and able to extend mercy to us at a moment's notice. It's not a God who hovers over us and reminds us of all the bad things we've done and how sinful we are. This is a wonderful counselor who has actually been through the suffering we've been through, experienced the temptation we've been through, and after all that, is all too willing to give us mercy. He is not a God that is just out there to ruin us, family. If we submit to him, he is willing to give us grace because he knows what we've been through. And so that's the second idea. The idea that we can come, and as Jesus says in Matthew 11, take his yoke, take his leadership, and find that it's easy. It's a whole lot better than trying to save face and prove ourselves by our good works. We can accept the grace that God gives us. And I want to go to this last point, the last response, and I think probably in some ways the most important for us. Those of us that are the people of God, if we believe that these things are true, then we've got to celebrate. We've got to celebrate the joy and the reality of the incarnation. Right? If we know that these things are true, that Jesus is the full expression of God, that Jesus made himself vulnerable on our behalf, that his suffering established his position as our counselor, that his vulnerability led to our reconciliation with God where we have good relationship with him, and that his decisions were all made out of grace that we did not earn or deserve, how can we do anything, family, but celebrate that reality? We've been given something that we don't deserve, and that is life-altering. And it looks like not just jumping up and down and singing songs, it looks like mission. Okay? The idea of celebrating is not just a, a response where we just, you know, are happy and then go home and go about our merry ways. It alters our life. It's contagious. It qualitatively transforms who we are. And it helps us answer questions like these, questions that those of us in the MACAP community hear all the time. Why do you live in Detroit? Why aren't you climbing the corporate ladder? Why aren't you concerned about safety? Why are you buying that home? What would compel you to live in the way in which you are living? Why are you doing what you're doing? The answer to that is grace. It's the incarnation. It's God saying, man, I have changed your life. And when we encounter that in a real way, we cannot help but be altered totally, transformatively. Let me give you two examples. One is the prophet Isaiah. And I have this passage up and you can read it, but I really want to focus on a specific point. Isaiah at this point is not a prophet. This is another Hebrew, and he enters into the sanctuary of God, and he encounters the last person he expected to see, God, okay? And when he encounters God, he sees God, and just 
completely turns into a very sad and self-loathing person who just is remorseful not for himself but for his people, a people who have become incredibly stubborn to the word of God. But God gives him grace. He cleanses him. It says that a seraphim flew and cleansed his tongue, his mouth, and it cleaned Isaiah in that way. It was an image to show that grace had been given to Isaiah. After Isaiah has encountered grace, something changes. He goes from a self-loathing, despondent person to, upon hearing the call of God, where the Lord says, whom shall I send to these stubborn people and basically accept a mission that you know is going to be destined for failure? In that moment, Isaiah says, here I am, send me. How did he go from this despondent person to a desperate missionary? It was grace. He was given grace by God and it changed him forever. Let me give you another example. A gospel rapper, I guess he's not really a gospel rapper anymore. He's kind of shed that label. A man named Lecrae. Lecrae uh, just came out with a recent album. And one of his songs in that album is called No Regrets. It's one of my favorites off of the album. During his first verse, he is showing how he has rejected a life of the past that is all consumed in glory and just self-betterment. He says, roll the clip of my life and you're going to see a bunch of empty bottles, broken hearts and blurry nights, Facebook likes and Twitter follows. I'm not living for today because tomorrow's looking pleasant and the future is a gift even though this is the present. Now key in here, he says, yeah, I do believe in heaven, but my actions ain't the key. Them gates remain locked if everything follow me. I don't earn my way into heaven. I know that my actions aren't the key. Lecrae gets grace and that leads into the chorus. Now this is Lecrae talking again. He says, so let them know that when I come to the end of my road and they ask me, was it worth it? Was it worth the hurting, the pain and the life I chose? I'll do it again in a heartbeat. I'll tell them I'll do it again in a heartbeat. And I die with no regrets. Family, we are doing something hard, really hard. And there's hurting and pain in the life that we chose. But if we get grace It's the only option that we have. It's something that we have encountered in a transformational way, in a way that allows us to say we have no regrets. I want to come back to Michael Carden and this idea of Christmas and really making sure we walk away and see how the incarnation relates to Christmas. Card, after going through this struggle in July where he was trying to write the devotional and saw kind of his sin in not being able to access Christmas because there was no lights and tinsel, writes at the end of his devotional, and he says that the problems of Christmas, the overconnectedness to the season, and the obscurity caused by our overfamiliarity with it are not insurmountable. To find our way, we must go back to the essence of the meaning of the story of Christmas. And really, family, that's what it's all about. The meaning of Christmas is not tinsel, it's not toys, it's not Santa Claus, it's the incarnation. And if we sing Christmas songs now, family, I hope that we would have joy in singing those songs because we see how the incarnation impacts today. It's not just December to the 25th. And it really connects right back to the gospel, family. What, what is the gospel? The gospel through the lens of the incarnation is very simple. It's the good news that the redeeming word extended grace to us that he voluntarily became flesh to experience what we experienced, dwelt among us, and reconciled us to God. And family, if we get that, we have no choice but to celebrate and to be on mission and to have a joy in knowing that God is not a distant God. He is a God that lives among us. Let's pray. Father, 
I'm just overwhelmed by your grace, and I pray that we are too. And I pray that grace would not be something that is a concept that we think about theologically, but it's something that we breathe in and breathe out every day. And it would be something that transforms the way that we live, just like it did to Isaiah and to Lecrae. And that we would see grace for what it is, and that it's something that we don't earn or merit, but something that you've given to us and shown us in the Incarnation. God, allow us to wrestle with that truth and allow us to understand that there's so much more to Christianity than just trying to be a good person. That is not what Christianity is. It's humbly building our lives around you, knowing that you've given us grace. We love you, God, and we thank you for that grace.